the First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced. Isha Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition, which can be found on Isha Melbourne's Facebook page. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today you'll hear conversations on politics, alternative news, community actions and other updates. I'm speaking now with Peter Murphy, human rights activist for the Philippines. And Peter, what's the state of play in the Philippines at the moment in relation to the new president? Is he a new president yet? Rodrigo Duterte is the outgoing president. Um, and he's still got the powers of the president until the inauguration of uh, the new one, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. The inauguration is on June 30. We, you know, just uh, having all of, you know, the ministers of what would you call the departmental secretaries, cabinet members of uh, Rodrigo Duterte are still also in office. And it will all change on Friday. Well, will it change greatly? Uh, I don't think so, but there will be a change. I mean, there will be a, a different cabinet, and there's some indication already that uh, you know Duterte's people are being a bit pushed aside, and uh, people associated with Estrada, Arroyo, and even the old Marcos Senior uh, will feature in the new cabinet. One of the things going on right now is that the designated new national security advisor is a woman for the first time and uh, I'm sure she's a very conservative character but she did uh, recently make statements that the red tagging uh, was a counterproductive exercise and and almost immediately after that the incumbent uh, national security advisor uh, really went on a rampage you know there's been uh, the declaring of some other people in the National Democratic Front especially a very elderly retired negotiator Louis Halandoni is a terrorist and um, the uh, ordering of 27 websites in the Philippines to be shut down because they're associated with communism and terrorism. I mean, they're all legally, they've been operating for years and years, um, related to some church bodies, some trade unions, and and many of them are are like uh, Crikey or the New Daily in our sort of terms, you know, their news websites because they're, they're critical of the government. They've been uh, hit with this order and they've been taken off the air, in fact. Yeah, I think that that's a sort of a, a last gasp from Esperon, his name is. I'm hoping that that, that will change, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's really living on hope because the continuity between Duterte and Marcos, I think, will be the predominant thing. The economic program will continue. The um, relations with the United States, the tension with China ongoing downgrading of agriculture in the country, speculation and, and just outright plunder of uh, public resources, that will all continue. So, And I think from our point of view um, on human rights, um, this means that the poverty, 
the uh, insecurity of life and the impunity of state forces in taking life or detaining people on completely you know, fabricated charges, uh, that will all continue as well. Can you talk a little bit about the peace ne- negotiator who's on that list now, Louise, a long-time fighter for peace? I can't remember all the details about uh, Louis' life, but you know, he's, as a, he came from a relatively wealthy family in Negros. He became a priest. During his uh, duties as a priest, he was confronted with the uh, plight of the sugar workers in Negros. They were extremely poor, faced a lot of violence if they spoke up for themselves. And so he became associated with organising sugar workers and then martial law came down and, and hit hard against that sort of work. And I think he had to go underground himself and he took part in quite a bit of underground organising in the like 1972-3-4 period and was associated with one of the very first strikes that took place in the end under, under martial law. It was actually a rum distillery, Tandawai. And then uh, I guess it was the uh, National Democratic Front, the Communist Party of the Philippines, both underground, asked him to leave the country, go to the Netherlands to be a point of information for the international community. So, you know, it's, it's a very long time ago, 1976, since he's really lived in the Philippines. So to, to, to accuse him of being a terrorist in the Philippines is like a totally absurd it can only be vaguely sustained because the definition of terrorism in this anti-terrorism law is so broad. It really captures anybody who can be accused of causing you know, public disquiet. That is, someone who's involved in an argument. And of course, the National Democratic Front is involved in a big argument about poverty, justice, and, and the sort of future development of the country. They're arguing all about that with uh, the series of governments we've had since the 1970s. It just shows how stupid that law is that someone like Louis Hallandoni could be you know, labelled that way and action be taken. Um, not, not that it has any, any material effect on Louis because I'm sure he doesn't have a bank account that can be seized in the Philippines and, and so on. I'm sure living on a pension in, in the Netherlands, um, a modest life. I think Louis, of course, is protesting about this and uh, continues to play some sort of consultative or advisory role, but he's really not a player uh, in any big way, even in the peace talks. Can you talk a bit more about the body or the people who make up this organisation that puts these people on a list? Who are they? In his case, it's called the Anti-Terrorism Council. So the law was adopted in mid-2020, and the council was set up under the terms of the law. It's basically military and police officers. Uh, the national security advisor is like uh, the deputy on, the, on this council of the president. And technically, I think the president's the head of it too. It's purely an executive body. It's like, if you can imagine Australia, where the prime minister decides who, who gets arrested or who's labelled. There's no judicial process involved at all. There is another step in this, but if the council of these military and police officers name an organisation or a person as a terrorist, then surveillance can be intensified on them. They can be arrested and held for 24 days without a charge. 
all of, all of this uh, as guilt by association around the person. And then if the council, and of course their financial assets can be seized and all this, and then uh, if the council wants to proscribe them, they then have to go to the courts. But they haven't done that with anybody yet. So you see how much damage can be done just with this arbitrary power. Yeah, I think we should just imagine that um, the chief of the army or his deputy or her deputy and, and the chief of the federal police and state police, they're, they're on this council. They decide. Is this the same as red tagging or is that something on top? That's the same thing because in general they're saying these people are communist terrorists. It's a sort of a dual thing because the law is called the anti-terrorism law. They put the word terrorism in and it's been going on for a few years as they've been building up to this often it's you know an organization or group of people is called a communist terrorist group ctg is even they've got acronyms for all of this yeah being accused of uh, being associated with the new people's army the communist party of the philippines and now the national democratic front of the philippines is sufficient well that's called red tagging and that's sufficient to get you on a death list to get you know, all this action uh, aimed at you the red tagging has been going on for years and years but became much more intense after 2018 when another body was formed it's called the national task force to end local communist armed conflict and that also got the president at the top of the task force his deputies esperon in this case and uh, it's like a parallel um, but it's a more freewheeling than the anti-terrorism council organizes raids uh, clearly to me there's a pattern where it organizes assassinations the red tagging takes the form of very you know intense uh, social media posts posters being put up naming people big uh, banners with photos on them saying all these people are terrorists and hung all around you know towns and uh, villages and in cities it's completely you know, unregulated. There's no re reference to any uh, investigation or judicial or process or right of appeal or anything like that. So it's just a sort of uh, operation of denunciation and slander, a bit like the old, good old-fashioned witch hunts. Definitely there's, because of the anti-communist rhetoric in it, it's like McCarthyism gone crazy. Can you name another country that behaves the same way as this? I'm, I'm sure that there's similar patterns in uh, Latin America. In Asia, uh, we don't really uh, have this sort of, this sort of uh, intensity uh, in any other, like if you look at Malaysia, Indonesia has got an incredible, you know, the government has got an incredible phobia for anything to do with uh, Marxism or communism. But this kind of uh, campaign doesn't, doesn't go on in Indonesia in, in this form at all. So there's, you know, there's intense surveillance of any so-called leftists, but there's not, not this um, crazed, uh, feverish uh, pursuit of, of individuals and organisations. Maybe for the last 20 years, Indonesia has been far more troubled by Islamic uh, fundamentalist violence than anything to do with the left. But I do know trade unionists in, in Indonesia are, you know, really concerned about the level of uh, surveillance that they do experience. But it's not like what's going on in the Philippines. Well, it just makes you wonder, surely, how long Professor Clarita Carlos is going to last because she not only said that red tagging 
must stop, but there should injustice and inequality should be addressed. Yes, but I think that's very normal rhetoric from all sides of politics in the Philippines, you know, when they're engaged in a certain uh, public relations exercise. So even Rodrigo Duterte would say he's very worried about poverty, but he, <laughs> he's only done things that exacerbate it. I think you can expect the same from uh, the next Marcos presidency. Professor Carlos, yeah, who knows how long she will stay in the job, but I, I'm pretty sure she'll stay for a while. I think there's, there is some tension, you know, between the incoming cabinet and the outgoing people. And it's hard to perceive exactly what their argument is. But, you know, the Philippines is, has gained a lot of notoriety in the international community under Duterte. It was very notorious also under Arroyo in the first decade of this century. And then you'd have to go back to Marcos for the next period of great notoriety. So I think most... Uh, even conservative Filipinos and, and leaders in the Philippines would want this to sort of be calmed down, to you know, get the International Criminal Court off their back, to get the UN Human Rights Council off their back. Some kind of um, diplomatic you know, offensive like Clarita Carlos's uh, message is, is really well-timed, uh, I think, but they would have to do something, I think, to demonstrate that, that they're ending the, the campaign of red-tagging we have to wait until next week, really, to see if uh, there's really any sort of uh, substantial shift going on. You know, there's about 700 political prisoners in the Philippines and, and nearly 500 of them were, were put there by the Duterte uh, presidency. So, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of scope for you know, relatively substantive gestures by the incoming government just to shift the perception. And this will... Depends, depends on what they're thinking about their economic and diplomatic uh, profile. Um, but I, I think if they want you know, more consideration from governments, especially in Europe and North America and Australia, say, then they need to change the perception and they need to show that they're changing something. From our point of view in ICHIRP, we're calling, first of all, for the release of uh, Senator Lima de Lima, Leela de Lima. She's a senator and she's been... Um, in prison now for five years. She's then really there because she criticised the uh, killing of poor people in the, in the name of a war on drugs. Since the International Criminal Court investigator has found that that campaign of drug anti-drug operations amounts to a crime against humanity, I think um, Senator DeLima is fully vindicated and there's absolutely no way she should be in prison one of the things we're doing is calling for her release and for the release of all the all the political prisoners. That would be great if that happened. Well, that notoriety doesn't seem to have affected the Australian government's support for Duterte, and we'll see what happens with the new Labor government. Yes. Uh, so, from again, it's a new situation in Australia. It hasn't quite settled down yet, um, but. Uh, you see that uh, the foreign minister has, has been hyperactive on uh, the South Pacific and she's been to Indonesia. Uh, I think that we we are determined to get some kind of uh, discussion with her or her office about a, a reset of the Philippine uh, relationship. I don't know what will come of that, but I'm sure that we will get, at least in the opening period, uh, a, a genuine exchange of views, whereas with the uh, previous foreign minister, we basically got 
a formula which was, yes, you know, we privately objected to these things happening and, uh, you know, they did vote the right way in the UN Human Rights Council, but nothing changed in terms of the military relationship. So I think Australia, the Australian governments have got a sort of dual track policy on the Philippines and, you know, where ministers and and, uh, significant people in government might be really horrified, genuinely horrified at what uh, Duterte was doing. Others were very willing to help him keep going uh, because of the tension with China, because of the relationship of Australia with the United States. I mean, we can do a lot better than that. This sort of thing makes a mockery of all of the trumpeting about Australian values, which we so sadly hear endlessly from prime ministers. Yeah, we're looking for a change there and uh, hopefully the dialogue can start soon. Just finishing off with um, the red tagging and the other issues, someone should remind the Philippines government that the the government in China is a communist government. (laughs) Yes, yes. I think quite a lot of Filipinos are making this point, but um, the whole thing is a bit absurd, isn't it? I mean... uh, it's a communist government of, of billionaires. It's just a sort of uh, slippery use of language on all sorts of sides. So, yes, we can say this uh, and we should say it, but I think when we're you know, seriously trying to grapple with the problems in the Philippines and the, what role Australia and other governments might be playing there, we, we can't really indulge in too many tricks. You know, it's, it's too serious and there's been, far, you know... Tens of thousands of lives have been lost in this last six years uh, because of this violent, inhuman uh, government there. It'll be a bit of a stain, I think, on Australia's record that we did so little about it, that, in fact, we continued to finance it. Yeah, I'm, I'm very uh, serious about you know, approaching this you know, directly, clearly, and trying to you know, make the facts speak for themselves. Another story that I've looked at, Peter, is the fear that when Marcos Jr. takes power, the documents that are in the archives relating to the atrocities of his father's regime will be Mm -hmm. destroyed. Yeah, I think there's a really genuine fear that that can happen and that might happen next week. Yeah, I heard that radio report about the, the frantic efforts of those people in that institute to try to digitise and preserve uh, as much as they can. Um, it's really clear that um, one of the major projects of the Marcoses, I know for a couple of decades now, has really been to whitewash or sanitise their, their family story. That it did, did have a measurable impact in this election we just saw happen. So they will continue with this. One of the cabinet appointments is that the vice president-elect Sarah Duterte will be the education secretary. So I think, yes, we can see more book burning and more purging of uh, information and also a much more sustained attack on the main teachers' union, the Alliance of Concerned Teachers, which was already happening, you know, really, really badly under Duterte. Well, it will continue, and uh, I think that's going to be a pretty big issue for the international trade union movement, the way it's going. Thank you so much, Peter. Good. Thank you very much for this interview, Jan. And we will see what happens in the Philippines after Wednesday. That was Peter Murphy.
You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown. When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street. Tune in to Homeless in Hotels. A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels. And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19. Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12pm to 1pm. On 3CR, 855 AM. Homeless in Hotels, a 3CR supporter. VCR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. You're on 3CR. Now we've got a song by Kate called Natural Woman. Enjoy. Body bubble Body bubble Hey, yeah. I was blind away all I was trying to complicate that piano and guitar chord. Sing about kissing the midnight on a rooftop. Saying you let's go me through your bedroom ride. We'll be watching movies all night. Know how to grind and sit by them. Won't that shit hide it? They not no makeup on. Still stuff on my head. You look into my eyes. Yeah, I prefer to see you instead. You make me feel like a natural woman. You make me feel like I have some beer. Let me see you, robot. Haven't seen you in a minute, and I, I don't like dust. I didn't know that I was seen on jazz. So rapidly rap, a street taffy fat. Quit when I was 11 to work on my tennis. Now all I do is run from love, and I, I'm getting some Galileo. Cause all I do is reach for the stars and Mars, uh, and Venus, uh, the Rubina. We'll be watching movies all night. You know how to grind and sit by the boat that shit's hiding. They not no makeup on, took up on my head. You look into my eyes. Do I prefer to do instead? You make me feel like a natural woman for money. You make me feel like I have to be more simple for money. Like I have been a Driving on the 
Triple 80, reaction slow but crazy. Smoking on that purple hazy, pick me up at a friend's house, 40 minute drive. Subs at McDonald's, got a happy meal, extra pickle, despicable me, point side. Yeah. It's my first time, I never kissed a guy like I told his hand and maybe kiss the chick a couple of songs. But none of that lip lip song shit, never tell none of that lip lip song shit. You reach into my mind, talk about the universe and how it is. That I want to do hair, your mom and daddy don't care. Get all the girls' attention, and you blush when I say, <clears throat> Yeah, I know. And the white girls want your baby, and the white girls want your baby. No, so she is lazy. When's the last time you hooked your boy with a fresh face? Have you seen his face lately? You told me how his woman took your place, but you forgot all about that and asked me how was my day? Yeah, like that. Yeah. And this is exactly how you made me feel. You may be feel like a natural woman for fun. You may be feel like I have some That was Kate with Natural Woman. And now we've got an interview between um, Anne McAllister and Jan Bartlett talking about music, Irish migration and the cruelty of refugee policy in Australia. A special guest today, one of our very own, Anne McAllister, long-time presenter of the Celtic Folk Show, which proceeds Tuesday home time, of course. I spoke with Anne and began by looking back at her early family life in suburban Melbourne to find out the origins of her lifetime activism. And then I should begin by looking at the family name, Mullane, Irish, I believe. Were mum and dad or both involved in any way in the politics of Ireland? No, actually it didn't. Obviously Mullane was my father's name and he identified as an Irish Catholic, but he wasn't interested in politics, so he brought me up to understand that culturally I was Irish, but politics didn't come into it, no. What about your mother? Well, <laughs> my mother, that's an interesting story. My mother's father was Irish, but she never met him. She wasn't interested in Irish politics either, so I came into Irish politics when I was much older, um, when I first actually became a member of the 3CR community, I was always interested in the music. I somehow found out that there was a program at 3CR on a Saturday morning at 9.30 that they sometimes played traditional Irish music. So I started listening to the Connolly Association program every week to listen to the music and a I got caught up in the politics. The politics was <laughs> way too much for me and I got caught up in it that way. But in a way, the members of that Connolly Association program were your mentors? Oh, most definitely, most definitely. I, I spent a lot of time, particularly with Mel and Seamus. I'm still very close friends with one of their daughters. Over the years, I spent a lot of time with Mel, particularly after Seamus 
very sadly passed away. But yes, I learned so much from both of them, particularly Seamus. Seamus was a born teacher and just loved sharing the truth about Ireland. Yeah, it was, it was a wonderful time, actually. How long after you first started to listen to the music did you become part of the program? Fairly soon after. I still remember the day I rang the number, the phone number that they used to give at the end of the program and, and, and Mel answered the phone and she was so kind to me. I got really emotional. I can still remember it. My Irishness was just so important to me and it, it was, for me, such a breakthrough to be able to connect with people who saw that we identify as Irish. And, and that's how they treated me, and it, it made a huge difference in my life. It really did. I was so grateful. And this was the time also of great trouble in Ireland with the, the men on the blankets, the killings. No, this was after that. What I did get involved in at, at that time was a man who was on hunger strike, I can't remember his name. He actually survived the hunger strike. He came off it and he's now a member of the Doyle. There were a few of those people from that time who actually came to Australia. Did you meet any of them? No, but at that time, the, the man who was on a hunger strike, his sister lived here and I met her. But no, I didn't meet any of the others. When did the Celtic Folk Show come and was that after the Connolly finished or were you doing both programs at the same time? The Celtic Folk Show started about 23 years ago. The Connolly Association was still going when I started my program, the Celtic Folk Show. Uh, Val Noon, uh, other people were doing the Connolly Association program by then. So after Seamus died and during his illness, a woman called... Phyllis Manzi and myself kept the Connolly Association program going by reading information that was sent to us by Father Des Wilson, who was a, a wonderful activist on behalf of the Republican people in Belfast. But then after a time, Jim Cusack and, and Val Noon and other people took over. Did you get a chance over any of those years to go to Ireland? <laughs> I've been to Ireland seven times but not during that time. My children were still quite young then, so I didn't start going to Ireland until, I don't know, about 10, 12 years ago, and I've been seven times since then. Certainly, I don't think I'll ever go again since COVID has happened to us and there's so much uncertainty. I, I'm not willing to be that far away from home again. I'll never go again, I don't think. So knowing... Seamus and all the others, did that bring you out into the community itself? Did you then take part? Oh, yeah, yeah. In yeah, what way? Yeah, most definitely. There were lots of social things then, particularly about, you know, the music. And, and, you know, I hadn't been aware of it because I hadn't grown up with it, but the huge population of Irish people here uh, and an incredible pocket of traditional Irish musicians who were handing on the music. Two families, names that come to mind, of course, are the Fitzgeralds and the Morans, Billy Moran, and the Fitzgeralds were a large family, but the two main musicians that I spent a lot of time 
and they're both still with us. Unfortunately, Billy Moran no longer is, but yeah, I spent a lot of time, mainly in pubs, listening to to music. In it's just a or a way of listening to the music, or a way of sharing the music that we call the session. So a session is a group of musicians playing tunes. It's where a musician who's already competent as a musician would come along and learn new tunes. So you don't go there to learn the instrument. You already have an understanding, even though it can be fairly minor, of the instrument, but you come along to learn tunes and to share tunes. And it's I've had the most wonderful times over the years having a few glasses of wine and listening to the music and, and also the song. There aren't as many songs as there are tunes, but depending on who's present at the session, there can be some really good songs too, quite often rebel songs. Yeah, I was going to say that resistance going back many, many, many centuries. Yeah, and a lot of the Irish history that I know, I've learned from the, from the actual songs. Even some of the tunes have names that, you know, identify politically. But, yeah, there's so many stories in the songs because it's, you know, it's an oral tradition in many ways. Well, the music is definitely an oral tradition. The music is handed on orally. It's not written down. It's not uh, recorded in a formal sort of way. It's just handed down. But, yeah, I've, <laughs> I've learned lots of Lots of interesting things from the songs. So in a sense, when you started your Celtic folk show, or the Celtic folk show, it was going to be a mixture of music, culture, resistance. Mm. Is that what you wanted? Yeah, definitely. I prefer to say as little as possible. It's, well, it's a music program anyway, as I explain to people. But I, I choose songs that, will tell the story that I, I, I want to be told. And I love being able to... I mean, I have a huge uh, collection of what I call my favourite songs. When I say it, I think it's, it, it's a laugh because it's just so many of my favourite songs that tell the stories that I want people to understand. One sort of genre or one particular type of song is a song about the potato famine. There's lots of songs from the, the time of the potato famine. Now, the potato famine was in the 1840s in Ireland, and, yeah, there, there's lots of songs that reference that and, and tell the story, and that's something that we will never forget because it had such a huge impact on the the population. So many people had to leave, the ones who survived it, had to leave to go to America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South America. And I think that reflects when you think about where the singers come from over the last decades. They're from those countries like America, England, Australia. Their ancestors came from Ireland. Yeah, definitely. That's the thing. Like Irish music has influenced, influenced the music of America USA I'm referring to when I say America, incredibly, but also Canada. There's a lot of traditional Irish music and Scots music in New Zealand. Traditional Irish music, of course, travelled with the people because the, the, the people travelled so far and, of course, they they took the music with them and um, 
it's a wonderful thing. There's so much of it throughout the world and the, the world of folk music. Well, for the last years, and your main focus, apart from Ireland, has been the brutal treatment by the Australian government of asylum seekers, but also Palestinians, Palestine. Let's talk about mm-hmm. Palestine and how you became involved in protesting against the treatment of Palestinians. I became aware of Palestine, and I, I really don't know when that was. It's just there. I, I don't know at what point it sort of became part of my life. I can actually remember meeting an, a traditional Irish musician who came to Melbourne. We knew each other on Facebook and, and he told me he was coming to visit Melbourne. And the connection he and I had other than on Facebook other than our interest in traditional Irish music was, of course, the plight of the people in Palestine. And I can remember saying to him, when I'm talking, when I'm meeting a new person and we're talking about politics, to me the litmus test of whether or not I agree with, whether or not I'm even willing to be friendly with them and spend time with them, is their views on Palestine. And if they they don't have strong views on Palestine that coincide with mine, well then I'm not really interested in um, spending any more time with them. Yeah, his name is Vincent Doherty. I can remember saying to him, you know, to me the litmus test for a true left-wing person is Palestine. Where did you actually find out? Were you listening to CR? Because we've had a Palestinian program for many years, not the current one, but we've had one before that. Or was it just out in the street talking to people? It's actually Facebook. There's a lot of people throughout the world who who are pro-Palestinian and very active in lots of other social media platforms that I don't use. The Palestinian people themselves are very active on Facebook. I've become friends, in inverted commas, with, with two different families in Gaza through Facebook who I send money to each month from myself, but also from another friend who gives me money and each month we send money to these two families in Gaza. That's what I do. And I I share as much as I can interesting stories or stories that are telling the plight of the people in Palestine because, as you well know, um, the mainstream media don't tell the truth about Palestine as they don't tell the truth about anything, really, other than may- maybe the weather and the time. Can you talk a little bit about those two families, what you learnt and their experiences? One of them, interestingly, I first became friendly with the husband, or he approached me, and, you know, I knew I was could be a scam but I know now that it's not and and then I for a while I didn't hear from the husband and then the wife contacted me and the husband was unwell and I still don't understand what the, his illness was because of course English isn't their language and they use a translator to, to communicate with us and you know things get lost in translation so often um, but that family, I think there's four children, a daughter and, and three sons, and the, the wife sends photos of them and a small amount of money that we send. 
I get a lot of personal satisfaction out of knowing that such terrible wrongs are being done to the people of Palestine, but there's a huge worldwide movement where people are able to send money and that we can make an ever so slight difference to their lives, but we can help them practically because we're sending them money and clearly that helps them to buy food or whatever. But also it must help them from a a mental point of view, a spiritual point of view of them knowing that there are people worldwide who actually know what is being done to them is wrong and, and are willing to support them. As I said, your current great concern is asylum seekers. Did it begin with you, like for many of us, standing out in the streets at a rally? Is that, is that what happened with you? My first protesting for asylum seekers or refugees was the Palm Sunday rally that is organised by many different religious organisations every year on Palm Sunday. I started going to that and then again through Facebook I became aware that there was a protest outside a motel in Brisbane, Kangaroo Point, where people protested once a week against the indefinite detention. I already knew that there were Medivac refugees being kept in the Mantra Hotel on Bell Street and a a fantastic woman activist, Kim Matasek, started a a protest outside Mantra Hotel every evening. And at first I I went there just a couple of nights a week because I had other responsibilities around that time. And then after um, the government moved the Medivac refugees from the Mantra Hotel in Bell Street to the Park Hotel and Swanson Street in Carlton. I, I continued protesting and, and at that stage I started trying to go every day if I could and over about 15 months I probably went there five out of the seven evenings of the week to protest. Were you able to contact any of the men in that hotel or prison because I know that there was some form of contact between protesters on the street. Yes, there's a lot of contact with both protesters on the street but also people who just worked online as well with the, the men in park, prison as I call it. I did become friendly with one in particular who he, or a couple actually, but they contacted me. There were a number of men who each day would be at the window so we we could see them. And, yeah, a couple of them contacted me. So through Facebook, I I used to um, have contact with them. We would also speak on the phone when we were there. That was a big thing, actually, particularly with the young women talking to the men inside the prison. But since so many of them on on the outside... I realised that there were so many more in there who were aware of us being on the street and protesting but never came to the windows, never made their their presence known. Um, at least 10 men have approached me and thanked me for my presence there and they're men that, you know, I had no idea. I, I didn't know them. I know them now, but I didn't know them then. When I was protesting... I never really felt that it would make much difference in changing the government's mind about the the cruel treatment of these men. 
my main purpose in being there to protest was so that those men knew that I cared about them and I now know that they did understand that and although they were being treated so poorly that they knew that there were many, many people in Australian society who cared about them. Is it true that the government through the immigration department actually boarded up those windows so that you couldn't see them in? Yeah, they put a film on the windows so that yeah we couldn't see them. Yes, definitely. It, it, that's yeah. That's I think it's border force who did that. The the, the level of cruelty, deliberate cruelty in, inside that place was amazing. A, another thing. Another example of the deliberate cruelty was that the men watched television, of course, and the, the SBS TV channel was reasonably good at covering what was going on, showed the men the support that they had for, from us protesters and, and from others, so took away the SBS TV channel from the access that the men had to TV. Who was the first man that you got to know once he was released? Because over the past while they released them slowly one by one until now I think they're all gone. But who was the first one that you were able to contact once he was outside? Actually, the the one that I've had the most to do with from the point of view of supporting him wasn't even in Park. He was in Mitre at Broadmeadows. I got to meet him one day in Lincoln Square, which is the park opposite, Park Prison. He was talking to another activist. He'd just been released a few days earlier and he had a lengthy conversation with another activist that I didn't really hear. But that at the end of their conversation, Jenny, the other activist, said to this young man, yes, we'll find someone to help you with that. And what he needed help with was that he had a medical appointment on the Monday morning, but no way of, he was staying in, in accommodation in the back blocks of Reservoir, in the, out in the industrial area of Reservoir, and he needed to keep a, a medical appointment with a, a doctor at Panch Medical Centre, which is opposite where Mantra Hotel was. And so that, I heard that conversation and I said, oh, what do you need help with? You know, maybe I can help. So that's what I started taking this young man to medical appointments and I've been doing that for the last 15 months and supporting him in, in lots of different ways. He came and stayed with me for a while. And when you say release, the government's not very generous, is it, for these men who have suffered so much? They get very little, don't they, once they are released? They get next to nothing from the government. But when they're released, they can either be released on what they call a bridging visa E, and clearly the E stands for exit. On a bridging visa E, they are entitled to get a job if they're able, but keep in mind that they've been tortured for between seven and, and nine years. So, you know, many of them are, oh, they're Medivac refugees anyway, so they're all unwell in varying degrees. So on a bridging visa, they can work. The only thing they get from the government is a Medicare card. 
they issue the visas for between five and six months. We're never really sure what determines the, the length of the, the visa. And one of the problems with that is once their visa runs, card runs out too, and that, that can cause problems. But we're used to that now, so we know to um, reapply for it. The other condition that they're released on is into community detention. It's not, not actually a visa, it's community detention. In community detention, they given an absolute pittance of an amount of money. I can't remember what it is, but, you know, you, you wouldn't see the dog on it, but they are given accommodation. They don't have to pay for accommodation, but they are not allowed to work. They live very lonely lives. There's a, a group of them, one I became very close to, who is now living in Adelaide, and, and he's a very intelligent, beautiful young man, and he's bored out of his brain. He'd, he'd love to be able to work but he can't. And I'd imagine the accommodation isn't up, isn't up to much. And yeah, the accommodation itself, well, particularly in the, the, the men in Adelaide I know, I've been there, I went to visit them in January. Uh, the accommodation's quite okay, actually. It's just a fair way out of the city. So it, it's the north of the city. Um, it's, it's not a bad area, it's okay. But when you have very little money, it's so little that you can do. To amuse yourself. That's the problem as I see it. And of course a lot of these young men had careers before they sought asylum. They had a good education, most of them? No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Some of them did, yeah. The ones I've been mixing with came more from rural areas and no, they... They lived fairly simple lives where they were. The one I'm really close to who, who's living in Adelaide, when I asked him, having known him for many months, when I asked him why he had to, you know, had to leave his, his home of Nepal, he said that the left-wing militia were, were recruiting young men and, you know, he, he wouldn't have survived. He would have been recruited into their army and he wouldn't have survived. He had no choice but to leave Nepal. And they've lost over a decade of their lives. They haven't been able to connect with families. I suppose they have been able to connect in one way, but actually physically connecting with their families for all that time. The impact of that on their lives. Yeah, definitely. And for instance, there's one I'm aware of who's been out for quite a few months now and he, he desperately wants to see his mother again. He knows he can't leave this country. If, if he was to leave this country, he's on a community visa. If he was to leave this country, they, they'd never let him back. They know that. So many times when I've been with, you know, one of these young men, he, he'll get a phone call and it will be his mother. And it's, it's so lovely to meet the mothers and, and to see them, you know, talking communicating with their mothers and, and, and I think their mothers are always happy to see me too and see that someone, you know, is caring, is willing to spend time with their son and, and caring for them because there's an incredible number of people who do the most amazing work supporting these men. Peter Dutton and Scott Morrison have subjected these men to such such cruelty but there are so many other people who, through their efforts, have shown the men that they are cared for 
will always be Gedful for as long as they can stay here. And of course, what we hope, I was thinking about it today, what I really want from Mr Albanese and the Labor government is that make a decision that these Medivac refugees who have had the most contact with are allowed to stay in this country if they want to as a way of showing them good faith that you know, because they've been treated so badly, I think it's the least that we owe them. There are some who don't want to stay here. There are some who feel very negative towards Australia and Australians and wish to go elsewhere, and hopefully they'll go to New Zealand. It's such a different culture, though, for those young men from where they're from. They're from Asia, Southern Asia. Did you meet any from the north of Africa? Or are they mainly Middle Eastern? And... I know. I've actually become quite close to a two from Somalia. There are quite a few from Africa, but most of them, most of the Medivac refugees that I've had contact with are either from Iran or Persia, depending on how they identify as Iranian or Persian, and from, from Bangladesh, in, interestingly. Many from Bangladesh. Finally, Anne, how has it changed your life? It's given me an incredible feeling of fulfilment. You know, I've been an activist for a long time, for many years, but always my activism was abstract. I, 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 it's the first time I've been able to, to meet and spend time with, hug even, the people who are the subject of my activism. And I just, like, it's incredibly stressful, um, the things that I have to bear witness to, and the men are so grateful. And particular women that have worked with you in these last little while, you've connected with a, a great number of very special women who helped you along? Yes, most definitely. That's the thing. There's a partic one particular woman that comes to mind who has been working both in the paid capacity but also many hours and, and many years in the volunteer, voluntary capacity. This particular woman has worked with refugees for 20 years and continues to work with refugees. There are some absolutely amazing, mainly women. Uh, there are some men too, but I don't know why it is that most of the activists seem to be women some incredible people, such a privilege to know them and, and to spend time with them. And also incredible men who have survived so much over those up to nine and a half years. That's the thing. Remember the day I came back from Adelaide was when the tennis player was in Park Hotel and, and my friend and I called in there to be part of the protest and, and just to catch up with friends. Someone who I'd never met before spoke to us and, and thanked us for our activism. And, and I just looked at him and said, don't thank me, thank the men for staying alive. And that was Anne McAllister, presenter of the Catholic Folk Show here on 3CR at 3pm every Tuesday. And that was Jan speaking with Anne McAllister from the Celtic Folk Show here on a Tuesday afternoon at 3 to 4 p.m. If you want to hear more from them and more about uh, all things Ireland, 
Stay tuned to 855am on a Tuesday afternoon. Got some more coming up for you after the break. You're listening to 855am. Keep community strong. Hey there, it's Scott Ludlam. And it's that radiothon time of year. The good folk at 3CR keep our airwaves alive with music and current affairs and ideas and politics and story and song, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. And this is our chance to help them out. Hop on over to 3cr.org.au and help keep community strong. It's never been a better time to support our community broadcasters around the country, and 3CR is one of the best of them. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. Thanks to Scott for his support. Uh, we're about $30,000 from our target for Radiothon. If you can afford to donate at all, we'd love to have your support as well so we can keep supporting projects like this. Side by side, we walk along to the end of Gertrude Street and with and Master for a Hi, I'm John Harding. Happy Nadoc Week, everybody. I want you all to join me for a special presentation, NADOC Saturday the 9th of July, a radio adaptation of The Dirty Mile, a play I wrote in conjunction with Gary Foley and Kylie Belling. It's a walk down Koori Fitzroy. Come and listen to the history, the characters, the events, the organisations and the people who made up the community of the Fitzroy Blacks. Grab a cuppa, put your feet up, have a laugh, a cry and a walk down Dirty Gurdy. Gertrude Street, with me and my friends. The Dirty Mile is being broadcast NADOC Saturday, 5.30pm, 9th of July, on the Let Your Freak Flag Fly show. Always was, always will be. Aboriginal land. So let's get closer and closer to its hands. Have you had your COVID-19 booster vaccine? The Murdoch Children's Research Institute, located at Royal Children's Hospital, are looking for people aged 18 years or older who have not yet received a COVID-19 booster vaccine to participate in the COVID-19 booster trial. You will either be given a standard or reduced dose Pfizer or Moderna booster and you will receive your antibody test results. For more information, contact covid.booster at ncri.edu.au. The Murdoch Children's Research Institute is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Breakfast. Interview between Jan Bartlett and Professor Stuart Rees about Lismore and the government's inadequate response to the floods earlier this year. For me, jam donuts bring back memories of Saturday afternoon football matches. But in Lismore... Northern New South Wales, still coping with the catastrophic floods and their aftermath, the words of a smiling pharmacist says it all. I'll sell you some aspirin, if you like, but if you want to feel better, I suggest you go to the bakery. They have jam donuts, 
date scones, and much more. And that's what Professor Emeritus Stuart Reith did recently during his day-night visit to Lismore. Stuart, I'm sure over the years you would have visited Lismore. What are your recollections of there before the latest and most catastrophic flood? I think it was a bustling, interesting city, amazing bookshop, well, bookshops, choice of lots of cafes. It seemed to be active, optimistic, and, you know, on the move, as it were. It had been flooded before, but, um, you know, there was a kind of we shall overcome attitude that was different this time. What did you find when you were there recently in terms of destruction, damage, and just how people were feeling? The fact that one third or more of the places in the, in the city, in the town, are boarded up. In other words, they're dead, nothing's going on. And then there's a sense of, um, well, mostly uncertainty. If we deal with uncertainty, then um, we feel powerless. And I think it's that the, the uncertainty coupled to powerlessness was the dominant, um, dominant feeling. And this is how long after the flood? I suppose we're about um, six weeks away from the worst of the flood. Because then there's the expectation that it could easily happen again. That's the problem, isn't it? Because the place where it is, as you said, there's been floods before. I was there once and they, they have the list on the, you know, the, the mark on the walls to show where it went to last time, but this time is just horrendous. So it is going to happen again with climate change. What do the people say about what they think about moving? I think the people who have the means to move can do so. The people who don't have the means, who, who have no insurance, who live in houses that nobody would dream of buying, they are marooned, as it were. And... Um, Unless there was some massive, uh, massive project of development for all the citizens or for all the vulnerable ones, then there's no obvious solution in, 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 in sight. In a way, the word solution presupposes that we, go, that we might find an aspirin. But when it comes to addressing a crisis like this, you have to move one, you have to have what I call small victories. You have, and people are ready for that. People are ready. They don't expect the magic wand to come, but they want uh, the sense of what the first step and the second step is towards a specific goal. Well, has that first step happened for some people? Well, yeah, in a way, the, you know, the account I gave in that article about the, the therapeutic effect of being in the bakery with lots and lots of other people with a lot of coffee and a lot of cakes, and uh, particularly jam donuts that looked as effective as um, antidepressants, that communication, that dialogue, that conversation is crucial. It's always, it's, it's every day's first step in a way because it combats loneliness, it shares ideas, it's, it's a means of problem solving. Without it, if you, people are stay isolated and only totally dependent on the hope that um, to some service will appear, that not, progress won't be made that way. Well, a service will appear. Where are the services? 
I looked on the internet while I was there to see what if I was feeling unwell in in Lisbon, what services could I get for men, particularly for mental health? Well, there's lots advertised. Whether they've got the staff, whether you could make an appointment if they did have the staff, that was unknown to me. If I was doing what I used to do 50 years ago, I I think I'd be arrogant enough to say I know how to solve this problem but I'm not in that position anymore. The services depend on a whole range of people in order to enable people to plan to plan to have a, a small victory and it may be it may be physical it may be that the the workmen in the different shops that were being opened were doing as much for people's mental health as a psychiatrist could that communication between the you know the people who are doing the physical repairs between the people people who are being who are doing the body and mind repairs they're all the they're all in the same team as far as I'm concerned. Well, the people that are doing the physical repairs are they locals or are they coming from outside the I, town? I, could, I wouldn't be sure. I, I suspect they're locals. I don't know whether they had enough um, sufficient tradespeople. I imagine this. I mean, in the early days, there were so many volunteers coming to help. But whether they've got all the tradespeople and the um, and the physical means to do the necessary repairs, I'm not. I don't. I couldn't answer that question. Did you manage to speak to people one to one and ask them what mechanisms they have for coping in such a stressful situation? Yeah, I, I did. I mean, the membership of diff- of different support groups is crucial. It's a bit like you know, me having a chat with you. I mean, it's meant to be a radio interview, but it's therapeutic for me. Uh, whether it's therapeutic for you and your listeners, God only knows. So, you know, the people in the pharmacy were kind of, A, they were humorous. I mean, I went to buy some aspirins, even though I didn't know any, didn't need any, because I, I wanted to talk to them. There were half a dozen staff in a, in a pharmacy that was mostly in the dark. And they were the ones who said, look, if you really need to feel good this morning, go down to the bakery. That was, you know, that was like a referral, a referral to a good service. Uh, they weren't re- saying, look, here's an appointment to see this, this doctor or this psychiatrist. They said, no, go down to the bakery. Did t- people speak at all about climate change? Oh, yeah, the people I met with acknowledged that um, this was... Um, that you can't separate climate change and health programs. Climate change and threats to health are the same thing. Climate change is a major health problem. It poses a major health problem. Yeah, that's very, very clear. If you're, dr- if you're drowned between, um, four, beneath 14 metres of water, then you have a health problem. Did you visit other areas outside of Lismore? Because I'd imagine Lismore wasn't the only place in trouble? No, 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 there were lots of places. I mean, I know Mullumbimby quite well, which is in almost, or was almost in as much trouble. I mean, there the message I got was that they would say the mud is worse than the water. In other words, if you want to start again, the water can be swept out, but you can't easily get rid of the mud. But look, it's all relative and comparative. We're now making observations about 14 million people displaced in Bangladesh by massive floods, tens of thousands of homes destroyed. That doesn't help 
the people of Lismore immediately, but it, it keeps in mind that this is an interdependent phenomenon that uh, we have to address if life on Earth is, would still be possible. And we'd also got to remember that years and years ago, the scientists and others were predicting that just this would happen with climate change. Correct. People living and, near and in, in Australia, but elsewhere. In Australia, we've had to put out with, put up with these moronic climate deniers, largely from the coalition and the, the National Party. I mean, they've been ignorant, irresponsible people. They've postponed, they, they've enabled us to postpone for, for 10 years taking this threat seriously. Even a major party like the Labour Party that's still in the thrall of the fossil fuel industry has some, some lessons to learn. My last question about Lismore was, Stuart, when you went to the bakery, did you choose a jam donut or did you have a date scone? Uh, I had the jam donut and my wife had the date scone. I enjoyed the chatter with the um, black uniformed, or the dark uniformed white, young waitresses who, who seemed to be enthusiastic and energetic. That was helpful too. You know, they smiled and they laughed and they gave you a jam donut quickly. Not like the surgery I'd just been to when I waited for an hour for very little to happen. I'd just like to ask you before you go, Stuart, about the situation for Julian Assange at the moment and what appears to be inaction by Albanese, but we don't really know what's, what's going on behind the scenes, <laughs> do we? Sure. No, we don't. Look, I don't criticise him for that because I'm not sure that anybody knows whether him make... I mean, he's, he's made the clearest statement that he could by saying enough is enough, this has to end. What bugs me is not whether Albanese is being slow, but why, why there are still 120 federal members of parliament who don't seem to be interested in doing anything about this. I mean, there's about 40 who signed up to a, to a petition and a campaign to, to free Julian Assange. But that means there's over a hundred more who don't seem to know about it, including my local MP. And public consciousness about this, I mean, it seems to be a problem. And we've stereotyped this brave young man. He's not, he's not young anymore. This brave man has been stereotyped and it's being unusual, even odd. Public consciousness should, should be outright, universally outraged about what is happening. And outraged against the British government. Well, yeah, outraged about the, the massive cruelty of the American government, the British government, and the years of cowardice of the Australians. I mean, it's not good enough to say that he's, to, to, to say he's getting the usual consular advice. That seems to be uh, nonsense. I mean, who are these consular officials? They wouldn't know as, frankly, they wouldn't know as much as I knew about the courts and the prisons and um, the administration of justice that you could <laughs> you frequently have to apply apply a blowtorch to officials to get something done that's not consular assistance the intervention should be vigorous energetic and committed to justice that's what the intervention on Julian's behalf should be about well there was a an intervention for Chelsea Manning wasn't there 
Well, in fact, I mean, Chelsea Manning served in the federal penitentiary until President Obama pardoned her and released her. Now, Julian Assange, who's not an American citizen, has been prosecuted and pursued for over 10 years. He's been held in, in this wretched British prison for almost three years, and he's been convicted of no offense. Then some bright spark in the Justice Department in America concocts the idea that he should be sentenced to 175 years in prison. Do they think that 200 years is the average, the, the, the average age of, of, of Australian citizens? Is that what they think? The whole thing is, a, is an international farce. That's Andrew Wilkie's judgment, uh, not mine. And not only an international fast, but the, the treatment that he and others are getting in Belmarsh and the descriptions of the place that if he does go to the US, he's going to be kept in, it's beyond belief. It's beyond belief because cruelty as policy has been central to the way these dark states behave. I mean, America, the fact that America loves prisons, they love prisons, they love punishment, they love killing one another in the streets is still referred to as a civilization. Well, it's a civilization of some kind, but it's not very civil. The fact that the British, I mean, British justice is another problem. There's no such thing as justice. It's a, it's a massive piece of theater run disproportionately by rich, powerful people dressed up as judges. And I hope that, you know, that judgment, I mean, and I've spent years of my life, as you know, in the Central Criminal Court, making those observations. Okay, well, Liz Moore, Julian Assange, final words? Well, final word, next topic is about what do we do, how do we respond to the war in Ukraine? We'll talk about that next time, because with this, I'll shortly send you publicity about the People's Forum on the war in Ukraine. Uh, in other words, what do we do about peace with justice in in, in Ukraine? How do we how do we sing the Beatles songs about justice, you know, or or, or imagining all, all the world forgetting about war and violence? That's the next topic. Good o. Thanks, Stuart. Okay, Jan. Good to talk to you. Jam donuts and date scones with Professor Emeritus Stuart Race. That was Jan speaking with Professor Stuart Rees, who is an Australian academic, human rights activist and founder of the Sydney Peace Foundation, about the current situation in Lismore, a community that is still devastated by the floods and the inadequate response by the government earlier this year. Stuart also gave us an update at the end there on Julian Assange's situation. Stay tuned to 3CR for more current affairs. Stay locked to 3CR. Hi, I'm Robbie Thorpe. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series, where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women in Victoria's prison. Beyond the Bars started in 2002. And this year marks 21 years on air. So tune in at 11am each day during NADOC from Monday the 4th of July to Friday the 8th of July for the Beyond the Bars 2022 broadcast.
For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au backslash beyond the bars. Just a reminder that it's NAIDOC week this week and there's going to be a live broadcast for NAIDOC week every morning from 11am each day. And um, yeah, stay tuned if you want to hear more about that. Go to 3cr.org.au slash beyond the bars. Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. You're on 3CR Breakfast. Up next is the history of the Summit of the Americas with Fred Fjontens. Three assessments of the recent Summit of the Americas, the ninth. One, an embarrassment for Biden. Two, a fraud. Three, a failure before it started. To look at the history of the Summit of the Americas, I spoke with journalist and author Fred Fuentes. The Summit of the Americas, in technical terms, it's held under the auspices of the Organization of American States. Now, the Organization of American States is an organization set up during the Cold War, largely run out of Washington. I mean, its offices are in the U.S. It's largely funded by the U.S. But it was an attempt to be a, a sort of a, a continental-wide sort of organization. In the 90s is when the concept of the Summit of the Americas comes about. So that is a, a coming together of the heads of states of all the countries in the region. Uh, and, and it was very much done with the idea of seeing if a free trade of the Americas Agreement, uh, the FTAA, could be agreed to at these summits. The, the sort of the origins of, of the Summit of the, America, of the, Summit of the Americas, auspicist by the OAS, aimed to bring the, the, the country in line with US neoliberal policy free, free trade agenda. The problem was is, you know, with the rise of you know, what's sort of commonly being referred to as pink tide governments, or let's say centre-left, left-wing governments in the region, by 2005, the push for the free trade agreement was definitively defeated. large number of countries, including Brazil, the, the largest uh, in the region, had said they did not want to participate uh, in a free trade agreement. And in many respects, after that, the, the Summit of the Americas very much started to lose its, its sort of reason for being. And even the organisation of American states sort of came to be questioned because we saw in response to or following the defeat of the Free Trade of the Americas Agreement, the signing or the creation of new organisations that sought to unite the region but without US intervention, interference, involvement. So we had things, for instance, such as the uh, South American 
the, sorry, the Union of South American Nations, UNASUR. Uh, we even had CELAC, the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States, which was essentially the OAS, but minus the United States and, and Canada. What we saw, though, in more recent years was a, a sort of a pullback towards the OAS, again, reflecting electoral defeats for the centre-left left in the region, a refocus of US attention to the region, and so an attempt to strengthen the OAS. And so this was the, the sort of framework for how this summit of the Americas came about. You know, this was sort of meant to be a, a sort of a, a repositioning of US in the region. Uh, of course, it wasn't was it the same as in the 90s? It wasn't, the idea wasn't here to talk about free trade of the Americas. Instead, it was to sort of consolidate this idea of, of uh, you know, what the US would call uh, the, the democratic Americas against those countries that are deliberately excluded from the summit of the Americas, uh, which in this case was uh, Cuba, uh, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. So that's a bit of the history and the immediate context for how this summit comes about. When were the countries of the Caribbean included? They've been included from the start. So they're, they're, they've always been... I mean, obviously, different countries have joined at different times in terms of the organisation of American states. But since the first summit of the Americas in the 90s, the, the Caribbean countries have, have always been included. Uh, of course, it should be mentioned that the one exception is Cuba, because Cuba has been excluded from the organisation of American states uh, essentially since 1960-61, so shortly after the, the Cuban Revolution. Okay, well, it, as I said at the beginning, it's been called an embarrassment for Biden, a fraud, a failure. What were the main reasons? Or was there more than one reason? In some, the, the, the main reason was that the US thought it could just simply dictate to the region that it would exclude Cuba, Venezuela and Nicaragua and that this would just be accepted and that the rest of the summit would go on as per normal. But in reality, it, it provoked a reaction, not so much, a, you know, obviously not a reaction that the summit itself didn't go ahead, but we had, you know, of the 33, four, no, well, you know, obviously minus the countries excluded, but let's have of the roughly 30 countries that could have attended, uh, about a third of them did not send their head of state, so made it very clear that they were deprioritising this summit. Some of them participated in parallel meetings to the summit, Others, you know, made it clear that even though they were attending, that they would um, raise within the Summit of the Americas that they thought it was incorrect to, to exclude countries irrespective of, of their political differences. So, so from where, where the U.S. had sort of thought it could easily just consolidate this sort of, uh, you know, as I said, what, you know, what it refers to as a democratic bloc against perceived dictatorships uh, in the region, uh, instead it had a conference where it largely was the, the rest of the region telling the U.S. that, well, no, you, you, you can't do this. If this is meant to be a summit of the Americans, then everyone in the Americas uh, should have the right to participate. And, of course, then within that, the differences can be debated, criticism uh, can be made, but ultimately we're, we're part of the, the same region. And so it's, it's also, you know, to a certain extent, you know, reignited the debate or the discussion about select, you know, about is it necessary to once again reinvigorate the idea of a community of Latin American and Caribbean states without the US and Canada? Now, this, this was proposed, I believe if I recall correctly, it was the Argentinian uh, president, or the Argentina who are currently hold the presidency of, of CELAC, who had 
initially raised the idea of a parallel select summit. Now, that didn't occur. There was not enough consensus amongst the rest of the countries to do that. But, you know, that's now been put back on the table, as I said, after after a long period of it, you know, having been put off the table and, and a sort of a consolidation of, of the organisation of American states and an attempt by the US to revive America. Once again, the discussion is occurring in the region, you know, about, well, what, what sort of relationship do we want as the Americas? And here, I think, in particular, Mexico, which has a long history of an independent foreign policy of refusing to side with any any other uh, foreign government. But, of course, given its proximity to the US in particular, you know, um, sort of striking out independent foreign policy positions, even though many Mexican governments throughout history have had close relationships with the US, but you know, very often refuse to follow US when it comes to international diplomacy, whether that's wars or whether that's exclusion of other countries. Um, now with uh, you know, centre-left, left-wing president uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador in power, and you know, again, Mexico's taken a firm position and was one of those countries that did not send its, its head of the state and said that he would question you know, its, its continued participation in, in these summits uh, if other countries were to be excluded. And with human rights one of the priorities for this conference, there's a few suspect countries in it, aren't there? The irony is, if, you know, if we want to talk about democracy and dictatorships, which was you know, supposedly what the US sort of frames the summit as being you know, sort of really important about, perhaps some, somewhat ironically that having been hurled under the auspices of the Organisation of American States was really up to dissident voices within and outside the summit to point out the role that the Organisation of American States, and in particular its Secretary-General, Luisa Alvazio, had played in, in the event leading up to the, the coup in Bolivia in 2019, and which saw a coup government preside over you know, extreme human rights violations for, for over a year until finally, under popular pressure, uh, elections were forced to be held. Uh, and, and once again, the, the movement towards socialism reaffirmed the majority had in the country in the ballot boxes and, and regain the presidency. But you know, this, this sort of the, the shows a complete hypocrisy where, you know, the actual, the actual one, well, obviously Bolivia's now no longer under, under that dictatorship, but during that whole time, the US had been very friendly to the Jimmy Anya's coup regime, had been very supportive of the organisation of American states, and at no point was this sort of, you know, really, it was really left up to other, other delegations to raise these issues. So the, those kind of hypocrisies have long played the summit of the Americas, and of course, this is just, Bolivia is just the most recent example. We've had other examples of, of coups in the region, whether they be military coups like we saw in Honduras in 2011, or whether they be uh, more on the on the scale of parliamentary coups as we saw in Paraguay and, and in, in Brazil. But you know, for all the discourse of democracy and human rights, it's very clear that the US has used this but only against particular governments or particular states that it deems to be a threat to its own uh, interests. There is a counter-summit in Los Angeles at the same time? That's right. There was, there was a people's summit. This has been very, a, a common feature. I mean, I'm not necessarily against, you know, at all of the summit of the Americas, but, um, you know, it's sort of hard to, seems like, you know, it was decades ago, but you know, one of the key counter-protests or counter protests more accurately, was a summit of the Americas in Quebec, uh, which was in 2001. That, at that time, captured a lot of global news. Um, it was around the time of the sort of anti-globalisation protests, protests against the World Trade Organisation in Seattle, 
that came shortly after that and, and was one of those projects. A, a very powerful people summit was the one related to what I mentioned in 2005 when the, the summit, you know, it becomes definitively clear at the Summit of the Americas that the, the tr Free Trade of Americas Agreement is, is going to collapse. A number of the heads of state at that time spoke at the People Summit. And we saw a similar thing this time. Not so much heads of states, but certainly at least, well, the heads of states of, of Venezuela and Cuba sent video messages. You know, they were not only uh, obviously not, not allowed access to the Summit of the Americas, but they were, weren't even allowed access to the United States. And, and so did Evo Morales, the former Bolivian president who, who was overthrown in the coup. So the, the People Summit was an ability to, for, for some of those governments, but more than anything for, for activist groups, solidarity groups, anti-war groups to also get together and continue their discussion of you know, what could an alternate solidarity from below look like. So we, we sort of kind of really had these this three levels of the de facto summits or, or you know, shadow summits that occurred, the official summit of the Americas, the, the unofficial summit or the unofficial sort of alliance of governments that you know, didn't really agree with this conception of a summit of the Americas based on exclusion, and then a, a summit from below of, of the people's movement. And we had, between those three, actors that, you know, crossed into each other. So we had those governments that didn't agree with the exclusion still participating, though, in the summit of the Americas. We had the countries from the summit of the Americas participating in the people's summit, and we had activists disrupting the summit of the Americas. So all, all of those three factors were interplaying uh, in Los Angeles uh, at, during this, this recent um, summit. Fred Friantes there on the history of the Summit of the Americas. Thanks to Jan and the other guests this morning. Stay tuned, stay tuned now on 3CR for Women on the Line coming up next. And don't forget to tune in to Beyond the Bars, uh, live broadcast from prison all week for NAIDOC week. Um, that's from 11am each day. And if you want more details about that, visit 3cr.org.au slash bar. Have a good morning. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. 3CR.